Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Philip of Caesarea. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, May the 3rd, 2015. Back in February of 2005, I took a 10-day trip to Ethiopia with a group from my church. That now feels like a long time ago, 10 years. But I still cherish several powerful memories. I'll never forget the firewood girls. Barefoot and bent over at the waist, they carried 75-pound bundles of eucalyptus saplings, seven feet wide, down the mountain to the center of Addis Ababa, 10 miles away, all for a few pennies. The women firewood carriers are such a common sight in Otis that you can read about them in the Lonely Planet guidebook. Then there's the food, especially Ethiopia's national dish called injera, a huge circle of spongy flatbread that's made from a very pungent sourdough. When we got home, I was so happy to discover a local Ethiopian restaurant with real injera. And then we also went to the famous churches in the desert village of Lalibela, about 300 miles north of Addis Ababa. Lalibela is home to 11 underground cave churches from the 13th century that were carved out of solid rock. They include sophisticated drainage systems, catacombs, and hermit caves. Their roofs are at ground level. These churches are still places of worship, a destination for pilgrims, and also a UNESCO World Heritage Site. The rock-hewn churches of Lalibela, and even older ones in Tigray from the 6th or 7th century, witness to Ethiopia's ancient Christian tradition. Ethiopia was the first nation to declare Christianity its state religion in the year 330. Ethiopian artists produced the oldest known illuminated gospel anywhere, and the oldest Ethiopian manuscript of any type, the so-called Garima Gospels that are dated from around the year 500. This rich tradition began with the story from the lectionary this week in Acts chapter 8 about the encounter between the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip the evangelist. The geographical boundaries of Ethiopia then and now are different, but that hardly matters. When that unnamed newly baptized believer returned home, he took with him what Luke calls the good news about Jesus. It's a fascinating example of how far and how fast that good news spread. From Jerusalem, some 3,000 miles south, into sub-Saharan Africa. There are actually two Philips in the New Testament, not to be confused. Philip from Bethsaida in Galilee is listed as one of the twelve apostles by all three synoptic writers. This Philip makes several appearances in the Gospels, especially in John, and then disappears from the story. 
Then there's Philip the Evangelist, as tradition now calls him, from the coastal city of Caesarea Maritima. He makes three appearances in the biblical narrative, all in Luke's Book of Acts. It's telling that one of the first stories about the early church describes the daily distribution of food to widows, Acts chapter 6. Care for the poor was a distinctive sign of the first believers. But we shouldn't romanticize. Human nature being what it is, Luke also writes that some widows complained that they weren't getting their fair share of food. That was bad enough, but there was also an ethnic linguistic twist to their argument. The Hellenistic Jews made their complaint against the Hebraic Jews. To solve this problem, the leaders asked the community to choose some people who were, quote, known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, end quote. Thus did the twelve, as Luke calls them, commission the seven. Philip, <coughs> Philip of Caesarea was one of the seven believers who was commissioned to solve a nasty dispute. He must have been a fair-minded, no-nonsense sort of person. Churches have lived with the logic of this decision ever since. In order not to neglect the so-called spiritual responsibilities of prayer and the ministry of the Word, the Twelve appointed the Seven to specialize in the more practical matters of food distribution. And thus our contemporary division of church ministry into priestly pastoral duties and the diaconal practical. Philip's next appearance in Acts chapter 8 indicates how fluid the boundaries of ministry were back then and why we should not be dogmatic about gifts, titles, and functions. Philip the deacon now does the work of a pastor. When a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, the believers scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Philip was one of those who fled for the tall grass. This logistics troubleshooter now preaches, performs miracles, and baptizes converts in Samaria, earning the moniker evangelist a word used here in Acts and only two other times in the New Testament. After an encounter with a sorcerer named Simon, and prompted by the Spirit, Philip hit the desert road south. On his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch who was a finance minister for the Queen of Ethiopia. This man, a white-collar sexual minority from the highest echelon of government, was a long way from home. Philip told him the good news about Jesus, writes Luke, and then baptized him. When the Ethiopian parted company with Philip, he went on his way rejoicing. Once home in ancient Ethiopia, this newly baptized believer sowed the seeds of what grew into one of our oldest and richest Christian traditions. 
And then once again, the spirit took Philip away. Luke says that he preached the gospel in all of the towns until he got back to his own house in his own town of Caesarea, about 60 miles from Jerusalem. And then what happened? Apparently, nothing much. He disappears from Luke's narrative. Philip seems to have settled down into domestic obscurity. And then years later, he reappears in Acts 21, where Luke reintroduces him as Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven. His house is big enough for his own family of six to host Luke, Paul, and their traveling companions for an extended stay. So, unlike many early believers who sold their lands and fields, Philip remained a property owner. Luke also says that Philip had four unmarried daughters who had the gift of prophecy. Philip encouraged the ministerial gifts of these women. Prophecy, like other women who were called prophets in the Bible, Miriam and Deborah, Huldah and Anna, and even Isaiah's wife. Philip then disappears from the biblical story for good, but not from Christian tradition, where his legacy lived on. Philip was esteemed by his community. He was always open to the Spirit. He did whatever needed to be done. He lived the good news of Jesus by word and by deed solving problems like food distribution, preaching and baptizing, and hosting travelers in his home. He nurtured his daughter's gifts, and when the time came, he was just as happy to pull down the flag and rest at home. He reminds me of one more experience that I had in Addis Ababa, one day we visited the Sisters of Mercy, home for the destitute and dying. It was a day of oppressive heat. The place was horribly overcrowded with people of extreme and complex needs, both physical and spiritual. It was easy to feel depressed. For many visitors, the place is just overwhelming. Then we met our host, Sister Ignacia of Slovakia. She was a prophetic woman who was powerful in word and deed. Sister Ignacia radiated equanimity as she ministered to screaming kids, teenage mothers with newborn babies, the severely retarded, and adults dying of AIDS. At their orphanage, 400 HIV-positive children experienced the love of God. She welcomed us with genuine kindness. Yet another tour group of gawkers, truth be told. And as we stood in a circle, she led us in the Lord's Prayer. Prophet, priest, problem solver, minister to the poor, and host. I was awed by Sister Ignatia's palpable sense of grace, strength, and joy. 
Just being in her presence made me feel good, despite all the chaos. Like Philip, she represented all that's good about the good news of Jesus. For books this week, I review a title by Elizabeth Colbert. It's called The Sixth Extinction, an Unnatural History. New York, Henry Holt, 2014, 319 pages. As I finished Elizabeth Colbert's second bestseller book, I read a news item about scientists who are drilling 5,000 feet below the surface of the Chicopa crater in Mexico in order to obtain a core sample. About 65 million years ago, a giant asteroid slammed into the Yucatan Peninsula, leaving a 125-mile wide crater. That mass extinction event wiped out the world's non-avian dinosaurs. Elizabeth Colbert explores the so-called Big Five mass extinctions in the history of the Earth. Times when an abnormally high number of species died in a short period of time. The causes of these mass extinctions have been varied and debated. Glaciation, ocean chemistry, volcanic eruptions, asteroids like the one that hit Mexico, and so on. In the Permian extinction 250 million years ago, the greatest extinction event ever, 96% of species died out. Colbert explains why many scientists believe that we have already entered a sixth mass extinction event, one that has two ominous distinctions. First, the rate of extinction is significantly faster than the normal background rate. And second, humanity is the cause of this extinction. Colbert hedges her bet saying that it's still too early to say whether it will reach the proportions of the Big Five. Each of her 13 chapters tracks the fate of a single species that she construes as emblematic of the sixth extinction. She reports from places as varied as rainforests in Brazil, coral reefs in Australia, bat caves in northeastern United States, in a zoo in Cincinnati, home of one of the last Sumatran rhinos, and one of many captive breeding programs. If humanity is the agent of the sixth extinction, with our pollution, invasive species, fossil fuels, habitat destruction, overharvesting, population growth, climate change, and so on, the ominous question at the end of her book is whether humanity will also be one of its victims. Elizabeth Colbert, The Sixth Extinction. For movies this week, I review a new film called Monk with a Camera from the year 2014. 
Nick Vreeland was born in Switzerland, where his father was a diplomat. When he was 13, he moved to the United States to attend boarding school at Groton. His grandmother, Diana Vreeland, was the legendary editor-in-chief of Vogue magazine. So when Nick wanted to study photography, she made the requisite connections. This documentary film tells the story of how in 1985, this very committed dandy of wealth and privilege became a Tibetan Buddhist monk at the 10th century Rato Dratsang Monastery in India. Vreeland lived there for 13 years and eventually became its abbot. It's an interesting story about a person of privilege who seeks the path of detachment and renunciation. In a touching remark at the end of the film, his father says, it was a special time for me when people stopped identifying me as the son of Diana and instead the father of Nick. Today, Nick Vreeland divides his time between the Tibet Center in New York City and Rato Drensing Monastery in India. I watch this film on Netflix streaming. Once again, Monk with a Camera. And for poetry this week, we've posted what might be my single favorite poem. It's called The Revival. It's by the Welsh physician Henry Vaughan, who lived from 1621 to 1695. It's perfect for springtime. Unfold, unfold, take in his light, who makes thy cares more short than night. The joys which with his day star rise, he deals to all but drowsy eyes. And what the men of this world miss, some drops and dews of future bliss. Hark, how his winds have changed their note, and with warm whispers call thee out. The frosts are past, the storms are gone, and backward life at last comes on. The lofty groves and expressed joys reply unto the turtle's voice. And here in dust and dirt, oh, here the lilies of his love appear. Henry Vaughan, The Revival. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, May the 3rd, 2015. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.